Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for subscribing and following. It's Justin Hahnemann, the ContenderCast. We're shining a light on bright ideas. It's a new year. Can't even wait for you to meet my guest today. We're in the non-alcoholic spirit space. I mean, it's booming right now. Um, and I mean, it's just an incredible category. I can't wait to dive in. You're going to love my guest. On the podcast today is Mark Livings. He is the founder, co-founder, right? And CEO of Liar Spirit. So great to have you on, Mark. Great to have you here with us on the podcast. Likewise, Justin. Great to be with you. And um, awesome to be talking to contender brands. Big fan. I love it. I'm so glad you're here. Um, man, we, I was, as you know, we've been like trying to schedule this for a couple weeks and I'm so glad this worked out, um, for us to finally connect. Mark is in Australia today. I am in Atlanta. So we had to coordinate time zones and a bunch of schedules and quite frankly, some technology issues on my side. So <laughs> we got it worked out. Okay. Um, uh, Mark back over to you. Talk about your background before we get to liars. Let's talk about your background. I know you did some work in the beverage space. So how about share a little bit about that with our audience? Sure thing. So uh, you can probably hear in my voice, I'm Australian. Uh, that's why I'm in Australia. Just been here wrapping up some downtime with my family. I uh, haven't seen them a lot the last three years for reasons that we all know about. Um, I'm normally based in Amsterdam. Um, so it's really great to get back to Australia when I can. Um, but yeah, 42 years old. I think the vast majority of my adult life, I've been in the CPG space. Uh, I started with Coca-Cola uh, in a graduate style role. Um, loved, loved the CPG space. I'm one of those nerds that goes into the supermarket and just hangs out there like it's a museum, <laughs> looking at packaging. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I love that. Seriously, isn't it? And you notice things, right? Because you've worked in the industry, you start to notice little nuances or bad packaging. Hundred percent. I used to, I used to drive my uh, my ex wife nuts when we'd go shopping together because I'd want to stay and she'd want to go home. So <laughs> it's one of those. That's so funny. It's, one... it's like in and out. You're like, I want to look around. Exactly. Yeah. It's one of those. <laughs> weird addictions. Um, but uh, yeah, loved, loved the space. And um, But I didn't love working within a big business at a very junior role. So um, I moved to the marketing and advertising side of the industry in the agency space. Uh, and then when I was 29, I founded what is now Australia's largest independent marketing agency, uh, the Kinetic Agency. And then built a bunch. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's quite the story. Uh, it gets better. Um, we then sort of, instead of going overseas, which is the normal path that you take as an agency owner, um, we built down the vertical. So I guess to borrow from the software sector, we built a, a services stack for everything that you need. So sure. we do branding. Okay, so unpack that for us. For sure. So we do. Yeah, so how, what does that look like? Branding, marketing, uh, advertising. We do packaging and printing production. Uh, we do web to print and personalization. Another business does uh, wow. point of sale uh, manufacturing and secondary packaging importation. And then another business does logistics and fulfillment and e-commerce fulfillment. And then tying it all together, we have a software business that uh, that creates marketing workflow for multinational CPG companies in Australia. So that's now a mid cap Wow. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> that's huge. And, and quite so now. wait, okay. Let's spend a let, let's spend a moment on that. I I did not plan for that, and this is one thing I love about. I always say this when I love when I get to host these shows and get to meet people like you. And and it's like I have an outline, and I'm like, wait a second, let's spend time here instead. Okay, so 
when you started that, for those in consumer products, you get most of what he was just laying out for you and why it's important for a big brand. But did you start with all of those services or did you start with specific elements when you were starting, you know, when you're starting that business and then it grew over time? What'd that look like? Yeah, so we started as a shopper marketing agency um, and then sort of grew up the pipe with regards to branding and, and, and advertising. And then we grew down the delivery pipeline. So integration of those manufacturing and fulfillment pieces. And then finally that workflow management piece as well. So as it stands, that's called the Brandlink group of companies. Uh, there's six different companies within that group. Uh, employs about 150 people, and we touch about 60 multinational corporations in the CPG sector in Australia and New Zealand with it. Wow, that's amazing. That's really cool. Uh, okay, that's a story in itself. Um, wow, I love that. Okay, so you go do that. You're in the you're in the agency space, but you're providing a lot of services that actually go beyond what I would say is a typical agency. So then, how did you decide to go from that to hey, I'm going to go launch a, a beverage business in the non alcoholic space? Yeah, it's a couple of things. So I guess philosophically, I thought you know an entrepreneur led brand might perform better in its early stages than a, a, a multinational established brand through, you know, one of their typical ways of doing things. Um, and look, I've been, I've got a little bit of confidence in myself as an entrepreneur. I'm an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist. Um, the Brandlink Group's been... EOI. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Congrats. Um, and then, you know, we've been one of the fastest growth businesses in Australia, according to the financial review. So, you know, we've got a lot of confidence in our pedigree to to lead businesses. The other thing is having that stack of services. I guess the easiest way to describe it, and just for, for the benefit of everyone listening, I can see Justin here, but you can't see me or Justin, but I'm holding up a bottle. We can do everything outside the bottle. So we can brand it, we can label it, we can distribute it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. What we can't do is what's inside the bottle uh, within that group of businesses. So I thought, look, if we partner up with someone who's excellent at you know, liquids or making chocolate or you know, manufacturing tampons, whatever it is, we'll have the recipe for a founder-led brand that has all of the marketing services that you would need for commercialization of it. And then we can scale the manufacturing capability of a partner. So that was sitting in my head. I'm going, you have here in this group of businesses that you've built an incubator. And we've seen incubators start within multinational CPG companies. And, you know, here's our innovation center of excellence, a skunk works as it's often termed. And those sure. are quite ineffective. Sure. And I think the reason why is that, you know, let's grab this guy from procurement and we'll grab this guy from finance. You guys, you know, you guys they're, they're going to go start expert. the innovation group. Yeah, <laughs> right. That didn't exactly. work. It's uh, so true. And then they said, okay, that's... Not or, they, or they pull back on the invest. By the way, the other reason is they'll pull back the investment. 100%. It's fun for now. New leadership comes in and they go, yeah, I don't know about that innovation thing we started. You know what I mean? Like, I've seen that happen over and over with big for brands. Sure. And then what we saw um, is you know, the, the CPG sector evolved their innovation agenda and they said, we'll start investing in, in brands. So what happened is they started internal venture teams. And again, the same mistake was made where they grabbed someone from procurement, someone from finance gave them a pair of t-shirts and said, you guys are now venture capitalists without having any pedigree <laughs> in the space. 
<laughs> right. And, across, and a cool brand name, like some cool name for the the hub, you know, or the, the incubation I can, environment. I can think of a few examples from Australia that uh, have all, all <laughs> shut down since, but that was the disease of the early noughties in the CPG innovation space is um, a whole bunch of really bad investments. That's so funny. Um, made by... A lot of people that are big brands listening right now are going, they're nodding their head going, yeah, I think I've seen that before. <laughs> Then, of course, and okay, now <laughs> therefore, we've seen it matures. We, I think we've seen a realization in the CPG space, and they've gone, Hang on, our cost of capital is so low, we can borrow at very, very low single digits because we're publicly listed multinational corporations. The second thing we can do is we can recognize that we suck at early stage innovation and external entrepreneurs that fight and prove product market fit exists means we can make a lower risk investment. So what we've seen this decade is the rise of internal venture teams that are populated with actual finance professionals looking to make later stage investments rather than early stage. So I'm going, right, so finally we found our equilibrium, the ecosystem has settled down, um, and there's an opportunity here. So can we take a brand from conception and grow it until it makes sense that it moves inside a global multinational company? Now, I'm probably being a very unfair on global multinational CPG companies, and that is they do very important things. They make product at extreme scale, at extreme affordability. At scale, exactly. With extreme reliance exactly. and consistency and supply, which the consumers of the world need those products on their supermarket shelves, their convenience store shelves, their pharmacy sure. shelves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they've gone, we are going to absolutely stick to our knitting and nail that. And then this piece will let everyone fight in the sandpit and then we'll grab the best contenders and we'll bring them into the big mix. We'll go buy the best ones and we will do acquisition. Exactly. Yeah. And they're not the, they're, and those companies have discovered many of them that they're not the best at. At startups, and then look at many of the acquisitions that have taken place. You know, the, the founders leave; uh, it loses momentum. They pull back investment. They kill the brand. I mean, I could give you many examples of that, and there's many successes as well. But that's the risk, right, of some of the ma the major brands that are bringing an acquisition, looking at our acquisition. Absolutely, and I think there's there's now fundamental recognition that the structure of the multinational businesses uh, are not optimal to support entrepreneur-led organizations at those early stages. Um, so that's where I saw the opportunity philosophically. And I was chewing on this for a while going, hey, I've got a virtual accelerator with this marketing services stack. I believe in my ability as an entrepreneur and I know CPG back to front because I've been doing it for 20 plus years. So I was looking for an opportunity. And this is the, I guess, the second part of your question that's the obvious second part of your question is, how did you identify this space? And I was sitting with one of my multinational spirits clients and we were looking at Australia's relationship with alcohol on a per capita basis and across a 10-year time frame. And it was a classic hockey stick, but reverse. So Australians' relationship with alcohol. Interesting. Okay. Declining, and the decline was accelerating as well. So I'm going, that is something that looks like an opportunity to me. So I started looking really closely at the sector. This is around 2015, 2016. And I saw that non-alcoholic sure. beer was on the move. Um, and I'm going, okay, that's very capital intensive. Uh, it's not something an entrepreneur can uh, could do easily. 
Um, and then I looked at wine. Um, and then from a product standpoint, <laughs> non-alcoholic wine is a, a bit of a disaster. Um, there's there's very, very few talking. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have wine, you know. Yeah. You, I don't know. There's, it's uh, hard to imagine light wine, like light beer, I get. But exactly. <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's just hard. To... It just doesn't sound right, you know? And, I mean, well, it's sounding right at... from the consumer perspective, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, also vegan bacon doesn't sound right until it happens. But the, the problem with wine, <laughs> the problem with wine is that, yeah, I, that there's such a massive gap between the consumer's expectation and the product offering at the moment. Now, I think someone's yep. going to crack that. I think we've seen a few businesses get closer to that bullseye than any other and they're doing exceptionally well but that's still part of our industry that needs the most work so for me i started gravitating towards spirits going hey there's nothing in this space it's about you know just under a third of the total global alcohol industry it's worth around 350 billion us a year so i start thinking wow you know what if we have similar levels of penetration into the traditional spirits category that something like plant-based milks have taken into the dairy category. So over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, it's gone from the lactose intolerant at, you know, a fraction of 1% to now it's a lifestyle product in the mid 10 Absolutely. And still growing. So I'm sitting there thinking, can we create the plant milk equivalent in the spirits category? And I got to thinking, got to thinking, I started looking at what it would take to innovate. Now, part of being in the CPG category for 20 years or so is I had great networks in the product development and innovation businesses of the world, and I had an outstanding relationship with a company called Derla. They're probably the world's leading beverage technology business based out of Darmstadt in Germany, but they have operations in around 40 countries, multi-billion dollar uh, business that services almost every wow. beverage company that you can think of. So I took this sure. opportunity to them and said, hey, this is what I can bring to the table. Can you solve for me my inside the bottle problem? And can we work on that together? And I said, this is my frustration uh, because I see that there's all of these wonderful opportunities that there's these giant organizations that they can't quite capitalize on them efficiently. And they're going, hey, our problem here is we create these amazing breakthroughs. We bring them to our multinational <laughs> clients. And they sit on them for five or six years, and inevitably some startup with similar technology races through, makes a big acquisition. So, yes, count us in. We will see what this looks like <laughs> from an experimental perspective, and let's put our technology behind a proven entrepreneur and a proven team to see what happens. Sure. And that's how life started. Mm. So we bought something very different. Got it. Um, so the gap that we saw... Um, was that we wanted people to have a frictionless interchange between a product that they know and loved, i.e. a cocktail or a mixed beverage, call it your bourbon coach, sure. call it your espresso martini. We wanted to enable the Coke Diet Coke moment where you say, I still want that lovely refreshment but without sugar. We wanted to recreate that moment. It says, I still want that elevated, sophisticated serve without alcohol. Sure. Without alcohol. So Interesting. For us, we said, how do we do that? Let's look at what it's going to take to recreate the top 50 cocktails and mixed beverages in the world. And we launched and said, right, we're going to need around 15 to 20 products. So that's madness for right. anyone with 50 seconds. <laughs> that's crazy. Not one, 
Sometimes we'll talk about three, but you need 15 to 20. So already we're looking like idiots to experts. But we launched with, <laughs> uh, with 12 products and we launched six markets in our first quarter. Now, the reason why is which wow. we, we, we're creating a system of products to enable how the world sure. likes to drink what they like to drink. And then the second thing that we were doing is we're going to borrow the playbook straight from Silicon Valley. We are going to blitz scale this business. So we're going to raise venture capital. We're going to burn it. And we're going to win market share because we believe that this category is set to boom and there's a demonstrable first mover and first scalar advantage available to businesses that can move very quickly. So that's how we did it. And that's how we launched. I love that. Okay, so I've got some questions. Um, how did you figure out? So I love the packaging. The bottles look like liquor bottles for those that haven't been to liars.com. Um, so so t- tell me about how did you figure out packaging and mix? Like, sure, you decided you needed 15 or 20, but who, who, who helped you decide that? Like, how did you figure that out? And how, how did you figure out packaging? Yeah, sure. So I guess the pa- first thing with packaging, we wanted it to look like it belonged on the bar. We didn't want it to look like something different because we wanted to give people inclusivity and we wanted to give people the ability to enjoy something alcohol-free without being judged by their peers, which is why the business is called Liars as well. So um, it's actually a shortened form of the Australian Liarbird um, and the Australian Liarbird is nature's greatest mimic. It can reproduce the bird song. Interesting. Any bird that it hears in nature. Wow. So we thought that's our that's our mascot. That's our brand mark. We're going to bring that in. We'll shorten it to liars. And now we've got a beautiful bar call where someone can say, hey, I want my margarita, but make it a liars. And then you've just got a little secret between you and the bartender then, and you don't need to share. Got it. If you're opting out. And nobody has to know. Exactly. Look, I'm drinking. Got it. You still feel cool or like you look like you're part of the party. And you don't have alcohol. Exactly. So I like to th- I like to say uh, sometimes that you know we're we're not selling non-alcoholic spirits. We're selling inclusivity, and um, that's. I love really that. Cool. That's a great way to think about it. So okay, so so the packaging. You have the ideas, but then what about the packaging and like? I mean, did you know where did you start? Yeah, for sure. So again, we wanted to make sure they look like they belong on the bar. Um, but you'll find the lyrebird on the neck of every bottle. And then on every label, you'll find an anthropomorphic animal, an animal with both human characteristics and animal characteristics. And the animal on each label is a little bit of a tip of the hat. It's an homage to the origin of the original alcoholic spirit. So, for example, the Liars American Malt, which is our homage to bourbon, has a North American black bear. looks like a bear. That's it. I see <laughs> and that. And our dry what is the agave blanco spirit? Is that a mouse or a rat? That's a salamander, and uh, the salamander. And then, and then the reserver. It. Actually, it's a chupacabra. Apologies to anyone who speaks Spanish uh, if I've mispronounced that. But it's, <laughs> I love it. it's a mythical nightmare. Okay, what about? Uh, okay, I love the dry London spirit. What's That's a that London one? pigeon, of course. The home of gin is, of course, the UK. So of course, we I have their most iconic animal. <laughs> Sorry to anyone. This is really cool. This. And I mean, by the way, the the reviews are amazing on here. Uh, I mean, like you've got, already got so many great positive reviews. Um, okay, so I got the packaging part. Did you know there was a market for this? Or was it like, we're going all in, we're going to make product, and hopefully someone's going to buy it? Like, what did that look like? Because 
or did you test it out in a couple of markets with one or two? Like, how did you think yeah, about we, that? We, we started testing um, with consumers and I got it wrong. I thought the market was one size. It turns out it was far, far, far bigger than I ever expected. So we thought that we would be servicing, uh, you know, pregnant women, the religiously abstinent or hyper-performance hyper people with these products. Yeah. <laughs> Very niche group. 100%. Right. What surprised us not long after we launched is that we realized that everyday people were coming into the category and they weren't using our products to replace alcohol consumption. They were using their our products to moderate their alcohol consumption. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, we realized we had a product that sat right at the fulcrum, right at the top of the health and wellness trend. And right now, people, it's dry January, but uh, right now, people all over the world are reassessing their relationship with alcohol. And a lot of people are trying to cut back. The majority of people are trying to cut back. And what do you do when you're trying to cut back? You look for alternatives. So if alternatives, hundred percent. So hey, Got I need it. to cut back my red my red red meat. I'm going to order an Impossible Burger or a Beyond Meat Burger. So I need to cut back my dairy. I'm going to order an Oatly in my latte rather than my full cream milk. Got so it. We've got the same thing pushing sense. our entire category forward as well. And for me, that has completely changed the scale of the potential of this business from what I thought would be right product into something that has the potential sure. to be truly mainstream. I mean, unbelievable. Great timing, too. Coming out of COVID, where I think there was a lot of alcohol consumption and, you know. Um, so how about distribution? Because it's non-alcoholic, do you still have to follow liquor, beer, and wine distribution rules? And I'm asking this because I know our audience will be thinking about this. We've had many um, entrepreneurs on that are in the alcoholic beverage and non-alcoholic space. But what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, for us, it's the, the, the simple answer is no. We don't need to follow those routes to market. The answer is, however, we do use those routes to market because we need their skills. We need their sales forces to... And those outlets, right? You want to be in the liquor store, right? I mean, I would think. Yeah, it's it's an adult beverage. Whilst it doesn't need a liquor license to sell it, we're absolutely targeting the you know legal drinking age plus part of the population. And we want to be available alongside the, the alcohol that they may be also purchasing or used to purchase in those outlets. So we need the skills of those liquor distributors at this stage of our journey to, one, help people understand why this category is important, Two, help with menu development and the hospitality structuring that um, liquor distributors will work with their retail or their on-trade partners with. And then thirdly, um, help with, you know, optimized deliveries. We don't want to be delivering a, a single bottle of our product, um, you know, to direct a store. We want it consolidated with the order of broader beverage. So we've decided Got to it. use liquor distributors around the world for those reasons. But the answer is we don't need to, but we want to, and it's giving us a great advantage by using those distributors at this stage of our product lifecycle. Makes sense. Okay, so you have you decide you're going to do 15 or around that number. Um, what's been your top seller or ones that haven't sold so well? Have you, I'm sure they don't sell equally. What's, what's been trending high or hot and what's been trending kind of medium to low? Yeah, one of the things that we worked out um, I think because of our broad range, 
and because of our global footprint, um, I still think we're really the only truly global brand in the category, is that we realise that the world likes to drink what the world likes to drink. So <laughs> true. You look, at your, you look at your best sellers uh, from the traditional alcohol category in any market, and it's going to mirror what our best sellers are in the non-alcoholic category in the same market. Interesting. And the okay. All that is the majority of the volume is coming from people moderating alcohol rather than replacing alcohol. So it won't surprise you to learn that in the United States, it's our agave spirits, it's our American malt, which is our homage to bourbon. And of course, in places like the United Kingdom, it's our dry London spirit, which is our homage to gin, which is our best. <laughs> Got <spirit>. it. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, what about markets? Did you decide to start in one market and then you've grown from there? Because you've mentioned a couple of places where you can buy your product. How, how have you, did you think about that early days versus now? Yeah. And I think we've done something quite unique. I'm not sure we're the only brand to do it. I think we might be, but somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. We were thinking global from day one as a startup. So within our first quarter- wow, that is unusual. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. We had, but we were so high conviction that the category was going to move and move quickly. And we saw such a, a compelling advantage as a first mover or first scaler um, that we decided to lean in on that. So, our first quarter, we'd launched Australia, New Zealand, the United States, the United Kingdom, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Um, the business is now three and a half years old, and Lies is now available in 104 markets. Um, I was chatting wow, to the guys. Amazing. Yeah, I was, I was chatting to the guys at Heineken uh, late last year, and it took them seven years to scale to 100 markets with Heineken Zero, uh, and it took a startup amazing. Less than half the time. <laughs> but, okay, so why? And I, I work with Heineken in my day job. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, why? But why have you been able to accelerate to that? And do you manufacture in one place and then distribute from there? What does that look like? For sure. So I guess why so many markets? Again, it looks like madness. Um, the the reason is, is there are certain accounts that are global in nature that you need a global footprint in order to service. So think about the major hospitality and accommodation groups. Think about travel retail. Think about leisure operators, cruise lines, airlines. Sure. Um, sure. You think about QSR chains and the like. You have an ability as a global brand to go and do global deals. And if you're the only global brand, then you sort of become the default, at least until the rest of the market catches up. So that's the reason we raced across the planet so quickly. Um, and, and, you know, admittedly, it's a high risk, high reward strategy, but it seems to have worked for liars so far. Um, the other part of your question there was... Um, Sorry, what was the other part of your manufacturing? Question? So manufacturing, you have yeah. you have global you've got global presence, but do you manufacture only in one place and then ship everything from there? What does that look like? Look, I think the uh, the easiest way to describe our manufacturing model is something that I know you're familiar with. It's the it's the Coca Cola style manufacturing model. Absolutely. Where we produce a uh, an IP rich serum in a central location, um, and then we move it. Uh, in small quantity to uh, co-packing operators within markets. That gives us a very, very short, very, very green and very, very affordable supply chain. Um, and we make our product that way. So I guess the those sorts of efficiencies and that sort of ability to scale rapidly has been baked into the business since the beginning. And we now have nine points of manufacture globally. Um, we'll have around 12 by the end of this calendar. Wow. 
So almost the baller model for that. For those that didn't pick up, Mark and I both spent time at Coca Cola, and we were talking about our time there before we hit record. Um, the model there for distribution is through ballers, right? They manufacture product and they distribute product in different territories. And um, it's not often you see a distribution model like that where that you've been able to pick up other manufacturing and then distribute to that local area, right? That's right. And, and look, we've got a distinct advantage versus brands that have, you know, a distinct geography as part of their brand architecture. So this is from this appellation or it's this hundred year old Italian grandmother recipe that we may have right. you know, only ever made in this. Sure. Village. No, in, in 2023, where we've got, you know, an energy crisis, logistics costs have been through the roof for the last three years. Totally. Um, brands like that are at a distinct disadvantage versus brands like Liars. Um, both brands have important and product market fit, but it's a little bit easier for Lies to scale like it has with the business operations that we've set up. Wow, amazing. Um, God, I've got so many questions for you. Uh, so, okay, a couple more here. So um, how have you thought about building the business from a people perspective? Yeah, I guess the uh, the, the really simple way of doing that is is we want the we want the Navy SEALs of beverage. So we want a small I love it. Okay. So describe that. <laughs> yeah. So look, they uh they can they can achieve enormous outcomes with a very small amount of manpower. They are surgical uh with regards to you know delivering the result. They can operate in environments of high ambiguity. Um, and they can operate at extremely high levels on an individual basis. Or as a small team, they can achieve outsized outcomes for the business as well. So uh, the Lies business sits right now at around 130 people globally. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that, you know, we've we've recruited the the Michael Jordans, the Wayne Gretzkys of the booze space. Um, I love it. I love it. Come and join it's amazing. <laughs> and, and then we're... What kind of case volume are you guys doing right now? Like just yeah, look, we, we we passed the magic uh, threshold uh, at a point last year where our run rate was in excess of a hundred thousand nine liter cases for wow, that's sort of amazing. the that's sort of like yeah. the the magical okay. It's like a threshold, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> we know that's you have really product cool. market fit, um, and look for right. us. <laughs> we're eyeing the next major stone, which is a million. So you know, how do we ten x the volumes in the business um, for sure. us? We think, you know, organic growth, if, if the competitor set stayed static, the organic growth of the category alone would deliver that in the next few years, given that the organic growth is so high. Um, but for us, we still have problems that we need to deal with as a category around saliency. So we still have really low awareness from consumers. Um, it's around three in 10 Americans, as an example, know that the non-alcoholic spirits category exists. It's around eight sure. to ten Americans know that non-alcoholic beer exists. So there's a there's a very simple gap to tripling revenue in the non-alcoholic spirit space simply by helping people understand that the optionality is there. And then, of course, sure. you know, as the category matures, we need to grow and build a very very powerful brand. And for us, we've decided we want to be synonymous with the category. We want to be the Hoover of vacuum cleaners. We want to be the Kleenex of tissues. You know, we want to be the Tesla of electric vehicles. How do we get to that point? So when people think about non-alcoholic spirits, the first brand they think of is Liars. And Liars. That's Great brand. I love the brand. I love the pack. Like I said, the labeling is amazing. Um, okay. Talked about future growth. That was one of my final questions I was going to ask you is like, what's next? But what's next from a, 
additional brand or line perspective? Or do you have any thoughts on that versus just kind of getting into more presence and more locations? Um, a couple of things. So look, we've gone very broad, broad very quickly. We spoke about the uh, 12 odd SKUs that we launched with. We now have 18 in the spirit space. We have five RTDs and we have three RTS ready to serve. So ready made cocktails that you stir over ice and serve. Um, sure. For us, that's been a lot of experimentation and exploration. Given that we're offering a product in a category that's never existed before, it's been a lot of experimentation around what works. And a lot of that's been only possible because we've got a receptive beverage technology partner who can put these things together for us very quickly with our own innovation team, help us launch them, and then work out does product market fit exist. So I think the next period is going to be a period of two things. One is consolidation. Uh, we'll probably look to optimize our skew mix, um, drop some products from some markets where they aren't performing. The second sure. thing is because we were talking about, you know, appellations before or particular recipes or traditional recipes that we don't need to follow, that allows our business to operate like a software business. So we can release patches and upgrades and so on. So for us, cool. a lot of the products that we have out there, despite the fact that, you know, we're the most award-winning brand in the space in the world at the moment, the technology that's going into them is almost six years old for some of those SKUs. Sure. So we've got an opportunity to take what we've learned over the course of the last six years and significantly upgrade them um, and continue to keep our liquid advantage over the competitor set as the leading brand in the sector. So for me, it's going to be about consolidation and improvement across the next cycle. Love that. Um, man, you got to come back on. We, we are absolutely having you back on down the road uh, as you continue down the path. I mean, you like you're already you've already hit this growth curve. Like I always say, lots of stretch and runway in front of you. Like what I like to say to some of our guests, and you're already stretched and runway, and there's lots more. Like I just so excited for you. Um, one thing I love to ask our guests is some of their biggest lessons learned in launching a business. You you've been an entrepreneur a couple times. Like you did, you talked about the agency that's super successful, and here you are in the beverage space. What would be two or three things you'd offer to other entrepreneurs listening? Uh, you know, remember that's our audience or much of our audience. What would be two or three things you'd offer in terms of advice? Um, things that you've learned. Uh, what would you share? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, and look, I can talk for hours and hours on this because. I've made a lot of mistakes or I've kissed a lot of frogs on the way through. As we like to say. Um, and look, the, despite the success of lies, it's not been without, you know, very, very significant challenges. We've bought it through a pandemic. Um, we've bought it through a collapse in the public markets across the last 12 months. And we're now operating it in what looks to be a recessionary environment with some very, very significant inflation in most markets. Um, you know, we've been active in China where, you know, we've had COVID zero pursued by the government until recently. So it's been a highly, highly um, ambiguous environment. So I guess the first piece of advice I would give to any aspiring entrepreneur if they've never done it before is you have to be comfortable with ambiguity. Um, and there's a temperament that you need uh, as an entrepreneur and you need conviction and self-belief in spades in order to bring a business through what you will inevitably face, which is times of um, you know, uh, conflict um, and times of headwind that come at you from competitors, the market, manufacturing, you name it. It's been, uh, it's been a really wild three years. Um, 
so I'd say resiliency and um, and having an entrepreneur's temperament, and you have to really, really want it and be prepared to sacrifice to get it. So um, make sure, sure that you're willing to make those sacrifices and willing to say that you really, really want it more than anything else in your life. Um, from a CPG perspective, um, I think that um, having a great product is really the number one consideration, but not far behind behind it is having great distribution um and sure. one of the things i see especially as, in cpg right yeah especially in cpg i've seen so many amazing products wither and on the vine and die because they simply can't get it onto shelf or into consumers hands or they're not good at promoting it effectively so um there's a saying that uh, i forget who taught me this but it was very very early in my career nothing kills a bad product faster than good marketing if you create a lot of conversation right. around a really shitty product, you're going to have people talking about it and warning people in a bad way. <laughs> That's right. That's so, so true. Um, for me, having a great product is number one, but then having great distribution is number two. Um, and then I guess the last thing is understand your consumer implicitly um, and use. use Use your ears and mouth in the same ratio that they're on your head. So listen relentlessly to the consumer and let that shape how you innovate your product and how you change your product and what the sort of product is that you bring to market. Just because you like something personally doesn't mean that there's a market there outside of the one human, i.e. yourself, that you are. So if you're in the CPG space, you need to thread that needle between making products that are extraordinary that appeal to a very tiny amount of market to products that are great that appeal to a part of the mass market. So try and get that balance right would be my third piece of advice for CPG entrepreneurs. I love that. Great advice um, for anybody that's either early stage or in, in the process. And as I mentioned, we, we will absolutely have you come back on down the road. People always ask me how, um, you know, I, how different guests are referred to us. And in your case, one of my previous guests suggested that I reach out to you. And so it's so great that you've been here. A lot of times I get pitched by a lot of the PR folks. And in this case, it's fun to be have a referral from someone else who's been on. And man, I'm so glad that uh, they worked out for us to connect. So Mark, thank you. Um, really amazing discussion. And like I said, let's get you back on the next year and continue to follow your progress. But really appreciate your time and your advice. The Contender Cast is powered by Contender Brands. the top global consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast. You can find additional Contender Cast episodes on worldwide podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contendercast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.